Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Lewis. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. We discuss the issues between rural and urban America and like going to the pasture to chase cows. Alongside it is my trusty dog, Kyle Bauer. Here I am. Kind of. Well, you're having trouble today. What's the problem? Oh, I'm on the road. You're more used to it than I am. So I think there's a cell tower down because normally where I have cell signal, I didn't today. So I'm just in a, I'm I'm in a tither. Ah, good. This is a good place to vent your titherness. Okay. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Kyle. All right. Dairy Business Association has gathered here today and tomorrow. Leading off the program is I'm going to call you somatotropin expert of the nation, Dr. Terry Etherton, the head of animal science and the dairy program at Penn State University. And for the record, Kyle, most importantly, he thinks that this program must be fully charged. Those are his words. If we're using a bomb timer to keep track of what time it is. (laughs) Didn't you say that? Yes. It's great to be here, Trent. Kyle, uh, Trent shared that he's been at the National Cattle and Beef Association meeting in Nashville and at that convention center there with some group of scientists that are explosive experts there, so Trent talked to them and got this handy damn little bomb timer here that we have on the table. It's a bit intimidating. If I don't do well, I don't know if it's going to detonate or what. Yeah. Well, well, it makes you not want to run over the time. time. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. It you not want to run over. causing us a problem. Uh-huh. It appears to be the case. So what we'll do is we'll continue without my trusty dog. I feel a little lost. You can't go out there herding cows without your trusty dog, but that's besides the point. Well, I, I don't know why you can't that. hear me. Illinois. Yeah. It's, it's kind of becoming Illinois week. We had uh, Roger DeWitt on a row route yesterday. Do you know Roger? I know who he is, yeah. You do? Yeah. From Kalispie, Illinois. That was a fantastic program. He is as uh, a pencil drawing that Dr. Jody Sterling gave me last week called The Skeptics, and it just moves me. I've never really had an appreciation for art, but this is... I'm suddenly developing an appreciation. Are you an art? Do you an art appreciation? Yeah, I would say on a scale of one to ten, about a two, where ten would be high appreciation. I, you know, I go to some museums, but it's sort of like going to the dinner. You would think a scientist would be very appreciative of art. Well, it, uh, some of it I am, but a lot of the abstract stuff I'm not. I'm thinking about abstract stuff. Like what's in the wall back Oh, yeah. No. And this well, why would they? Point Hotel we're, we're yeah. sitting in. We are in Madison, Wisconsin, which, by the way, the first time I addressed the Dairy Business Association meeting was five years ago. This is the fifth year in a row that I've had the good fortune of addressing this group. You would think that uh, they would be tired of me by now. But at that point in time, we called Madison 20 miles surrounded by reality. Now we call it 40 miles surrounded by reality. <laughs> Urbanization is getting from one end to the other. Well, Madison is, uh, you know, it's uh, got more than a few people that are uh, uh, championing the idea that what we do is not appropriate, that food production, at least animal food production, should move offshore. So we're kind of in the middle of that hotbed. We are. A lot of, uh, let's just call it liberal thinking, comes from Madison, Wisconsin. You have spent a lot of time, 79, oh man, that's almost 30 years. We're getting close to 30 years. 30 years studying somatotropin. Yeah. That's a word that causes a lot of deer-in-the-headlights looks. What is a somatotropin? It's a uh, molecule that all mammals make. Uh, in humans, uh, if you don't make it as a child, you end up being a dwarf or suffering from short stature diseases. Uh, today, we have the luxury of treating those kids with recombinant human somatotropin. Uh, the molecule that I've looked at is the version that 
cows and pigs make, uh, and it's essentially the same protein. Years ago, uh, in fact, 1994, the, the cattle or bovine version of somatotropin was approved for use in the dairy industry, and specifically was the recombinantly derived protein, meaning it was made using some technologies that are really neat. Let me stop you right there, because we can talk about hormones, we can talk about somatotropin, and we don't know whether we really want any of those things in our body or not, but if we would refer to them more frequently as a protein, as you just did, well, that would go a long way in explaining things that everybody could understand. Well, that's right. And the reality is that every food we eat has lots and lots of things in it, lots of hormones. Plants are loaded with them. Uh, vegetable oils have all sorts of phytoestrogens, which are steroid-like hormones. And uh, the discussion that some folks have uh, that creates a lot of excitement, they try to scare people about hormones and food, is just crazy. And this is a molecule, uh, bovine somatotropin, uh, that uh, is used in that subsidiary industry. Uh, treatment does not change milk levels of the protein. It's present at about 50 picograms in a milliliter of blood. Picograms? That's the uh, picograms. Well, I've tried to explain that to folks who don't know, and it's a real trick. It's uh, 10 to the minus 12th gram. Oh, now I understand. So, <laughs> that doesn't happen all the time. The best way I've done this, we're sitting in the lobby that's got about eight stories. Okay. Uh, and it would be filling this lobby up with ping pong balls, and one of them, the colored one, would be 50 picograms. That would kind of put it in context. So this is the really? room. We're in a room that's about, what, 150 by 50? Yeah. By, oh, it's, it's a little wider. Taller. Yeah. So, so this is something that's present in a fleetingly small concentration. Consequently, we have to peek to see them. That's <laughs> 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 my visual. <laughs> and, and, and so it's just a limited detection, or maybe another way would be, it's, it's just a really minute amount. And because it's a protein, it's, it's, uh, if we consume it, when you do, when you drink milk or eat dairy products, it just digests like all other proteins. Those proteins green beans get digested, and, and uh, it gets digested to individual amino acids that have no hormone-like effect in humans. So the, the data has been clear for decades that non-primate somatotropins, that is, somatotropins that cattle make or pigs make, have no biological effect in humans. Now, having said that, you uh, see a lot of things going on in society today where, uh, especially in the dairy industry, uh, some processors and retailers are trying to differentiate products, sell them for a lot more, and they're scaring consumers by saying contains no artificial hormones, dangerous pesticides or antibiotics, and the intent is to have people think, well, geez, the conventional milk must have that. I should go pay more for the what's called RBSP free milk, which is causing a, a, a real quandary because, well, in Pennsylvania, we've got labeling issues, labeling laws that have come up, and you sent me an email about one milk that was even romensin-free and RBSP-free and something else free, but oxygen-free or something, I don't know. Anyway, I mean, it's almost out of control, and it's like yeah. agriculture, and I don't I think we have time to go into what's going on right now with Pennsylvania labeling laws. We'll wait until we come back after the break and talk about that. But I, I must admit, here in front of the public, that I have stolen at least one of your quotes. And usually I don't give you credit. <laughs> but we're talking about the consumer, the United States, not just the United States citizen, because actually earlier this morning we had breakfast with a young lady from London, and many of the initiatives that we fight in rejecting science incubate and start in the European Union. Would you agree? Yes. Which I don't 
understand. Maybe you can tell me why that is. But we don't understand science. I mean, we live in what is the information age, where we have access to more information minute by minute than we've ever had, and yet we're most ignorant of basic science. And the thing that I've stolen is the average person doesn't know whether the center of the earth is hot or cold. That's right. They, uh, I, I think many people have had a jolty experience in a science class, either in high school or college. Uh, because of that experience, they don't do science very favorably. They're certainly not talking about quantum mechanics at dinner or other scientific <laughs> aspects that are important. Uh, and there's a nomenclature in science that's very difficult. It's, it's, it's outside the traditional conversation. For example, I say picogram or somatotropin. Yeah or hormone receptors, nobody, it's very hard to understand. Phytoestrogen. Yeah. Who knows what we might talk about? It's all protein, folks. Dr. Kerry Epstein on roll out more after this. Two decades ago, no one could have imagined the transformation of the feed industry and the challenges that continue to this day. In this world of change, past performance no longer predicts the future. From environmental factors and animal welfare concerns to consumer well-being, our industry has had to be forward-thinking, reinventing the way we do business or risk getting left behind. It is the discipline of science and the foresight of research that can turn these challenges into opportunities. Opportunities to revitalize our industry through cutting-edge technologies and nutritional developments. And this is simply the intro of a video posted on the website, alltech.com. It's called Controlling Your Own Destiny. Alltech wants to be a supplier of ingredients and educational information so that you can do just that. On the web, www.alltech.com. Total Alarm Company, this is Todd. Yeah, hi. Can you guys handle pretty big jobs? How big are we talking? Well, super duper big, Todd. Uh... Yeah, this is my dad's business. I just work here summers. Well, he is going to be so proud of you. You are about to lock in a deal to install a smoke alarm system in every single forest in America. Cool. Like the buildings there? The ranger places? No, the forest. I don't understand. Well, we are a group of concerned citizens, and we want to install alarm systems in the forest to alert the animals. You guys probably see the effects of people's lack of respect for fire all the time, right? Yeah. Dad? Yeah. Uh, it's just Claude. What can I do for you? Can you install a smoke alarm system in every forest in America? <laughs> it's a joke. No, we just want to combat people's bad behavior and warn the animals when there's a fire. Only you can prevent wildfires. Brought to you by Smokey Bear, the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, the Ad Council, and this station. While you're relishing these good grain prices, Hoover Tarps hopes you'll keep two things in mind. One, you don't want to lose any of that valuable grain because of a poor tarp. And two, these prices will help to offset your investment in a new tarp. Hoover Tarps is your platinum Sherco dealer and offers below factory direct prices. You can go fast or you can go slow, but don't go tarpless. Call Hoover Tarp Sales at 800-536-2348. Good Wednesday afternoon, everyone. Joining you in the KFRM studios, I'm Dee Dee Singular. Let's take a glance at your regional weather summary. Starting off in Nebraska, skies overnight were partly to mostly cloudy across western and north central Nebraska. Low temperatures were mainly in the 20s. Winds overnight were northwest at 10 to 15 miles per hour. 
Partly sunny skies are expected this afternoon with highs ranging from the mid-30s to mid-40s. Northwest winds of 25 to 35 miles per hour with gusts to 45 possible. And now for Oklahoma, an increased southerly breeze and stream of high clouds ahead of an approaching cold front maintain mild temperatures overnight. Readings generally range from the lower to middle 40s by sunrise. And mid-morning winds from the south had increased considerably to 15 to 25 miles per hour with higher gusts. A veil of high clouds remained across the northwest portion of the region as a cold front continued its advance southeastward. Temperatures range mainly in the lower 50s across the state. A dry cold front will pass through the region today, dropping temperatures to the upper 20s to mid-30s overnight tonight. And highs tomorrow are expected to remain generally in the 50s under a sunny sky. In Kansas, a cold front will rage across the region this afternoon. Strong gusty winds will occur ahead and behind the front. Ahead of the boundary, warm southerly winds will continue over southeastern Kansas. This will keep afternoon highs quite mild in the 50s and 60s. For the rest of the region, cold air will filter back in with gusty northwest winds associated with an Arctic high-pressure system. Skies will begin to clear for Kansas behind the front, but mostly cloudy conditions will remain over most of the region. Tonight, more seasonable temperatures will return. However, gusty winds will die off as the high settles over the region. Look for lows to range from the teens in Nebraska to the 30s in Oklahoma. That's been a glimpse of your regional weather summary. Stay tuned for more Rural Route on the way next. Welcome back to Rural Route segment two from Madison. Well, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, sitting here at the dinner table looking at Dr. Terry Etherton from Penn State University. And if the earth or the center of the earth was lukewarm earlier, Kyle Bauer has had so much trouble with his cell phone today, it is probably blazing hot. Are you with us now or not? <laughs> we, we, we've lost him again. Kyle, you must be there. there. I think we officially have word. Kyle has disappeared. We've lost contact. You know, he just doesn't understand science, and he's afraid he will be embarrassed with the silly questions he would ask. He, he acts like he has cell phone problems. I have to repeat that so that I don't want to say that behind his back. I want to make sure he knows I did say that. Tell us what Pennsylvania and the Secretary of Agriculture from the state of Pennsylvania, Denny Wolf, has kind of taken a stand, put himself out on a limb, I would say, and uh, has some arrows being shot at him. What's behind that? He has demonstrated great courage and conviction, uh, has talked obviously to the governor, uh, to come up with new guidance that will take away these false, deceptive, and misleading absence claims uh, and promote truth and labeling. Uh, the center of this discussion is the, the word sequence are BSD free milk. Uh, there is no way to determine by any scientific assay if a cow has or has not been treated with BST measuring anything in the milk, the composition is unchanged. Uh, this has led some dairy processors to uh, have producers sign affidavits saying they're not using the technology. Uh, and in most cases, I'm just going to name the biggest milk purchaser in the country, Dairy Farmers of America, purchased one-third of the milk produced in this nation, have sent out letters saying, Sign this affidavit or we're not buying your milk. That's right. And, and it's, it's almost a monopolistic force at work because a lot of producers don't have, they just have one option for selling milk. They can't store it in the backyard. Uh, they are using a profit tool that makes them money. Uh, it allows us to produce more milk with fewer cows. 
and it's absolutely deceptive, and, and it's just, uh, I refer to it as, as technology being hijacked away from producers. Producers should have, in this country, the freedom to operate, the freedom to choose best management practices that are safe and effective, and the freedom to use technologies that make money for them. Uh, a good story to illustrate this, I had a producer who milks 200 cows, he'd be a small dairy farmer, uses RBST, and his processor said, if you don't sign the affidavit, you're gone. You've got to find another outlet. And to him, that profit that he was making from using BST was the difference between a positive cash flow and a negative cash flow. And he said, what can I do? Well, I can't do anything other than try to be a voice for science and rational approaches to things and, and defend science. At the bottom of this discussion trend, it's really an attack on science an attack on innovation, finding the next bells and whistles will benefit food production systems worldwide. Uh, if this goes down the tube, then private sector is not going to commercialize another discovery made in a laboratory at a university. Then we will kill technological innovation. Then we might have a discussion about all sorts of things, uh, including what do we do to feed a growing world population. And right now, that's a dicey proposition as you look forward over the next 50 years. A growing world population, some think there might be climactic changes taking place to affect food production. I like how you say that. Some think there might be. Yeah. yeah. Well, at one point in time, North America was covered with ice, so I think there has been kind of cold warming taking place. Yeah, I mean, climactic conditions. And, and honestly, Terry, on this program, I have spent more than my fair share of time talking about the rejection of science and technology in the dairy industry, primarily not understanding or become bovine cytotropin. But it's not just about, as you were just telling us, it's not just about not accepting recumbent bovine cytotropin in the dairy industry. It is about rejecting science and the ability to be more efficient with the natural resources that we are in charge of. And this just burns me to no end that we have the United Nations talking about the number one contributor to global warming, the cow. And yet, we have the ability to implement technology to be more efficient with the resources, and look what the dairy industry has accomplished in 60 years. In 1945, we had 24 million dairy cows. Today, we have 9.2 million dairy cows, and yet we produce three times as much total milk with one-third of the cows. We've decreased our footprint on the planet, and yet they want to talk about we can't accept this technology, and yet at the same time, they tell us the cow is the number one contributor to climate change. It doesn't work. And a part of this has been the remarkable uh, reality to me that the scientific community, the animal scientists and dairy scientists in the United States and North America have largely sat on the sofa, have not engaged in advocacy, have done a, just an absolutely wretched job of, of educating the public about science, the benefits of food. Uh, in the context of animal agriculture, I, you could come up with a scenario where some opponent groups want that aspect of food production offshore, then we could have a debate about can you have national security in the aspect of food security. That would be a real short discussion. You can't do yeah, that. It's over now. You can't. And, and then uh, this is much bigger than BST. There are all sorts of technologies that are on the radar. Um, I've uh, got some data from a survey that was done in a meeting in the Midwest a couple months ago, a bunch of dairy producers, and on the list of uh, the synchronization programs used for reproductive management, those use hormones, the perfectly safe hormones. Uh, you have all the genetically modified feed stuff. Uh, you have uh, dehorning. Burger uh, King yesterday announced in Denmark they will no longer serve sausage or any pork products from animals 
that do not receive anesthesia during castration. Burger King announced that yesterday. And, and you have that reality where when a large retailer goes to sourcing products in that way or from cage-free or crate-free production and ignores all the science and the best management practices, uh, we have a problem. And so the scientific community has sat there not participating, and uh, it's just a remarkably unfortunate situation. I've had some scientists very recently, I'll just name him, Dr. Gary Smith, in our listening area, Colorado State University. He's talking primarily about the beef and our use of estradiol or estrogen-based products in the beef industry. And the European Union says, we don't want American beef because it has that hormone in it. He says, you give the customer what they want. When the scientific community says, we reject the science and just give the customer what we want, how do we answer that? Well, there's an element here where... uh, what consumers want is a very slippery slope. It's multifaceted. There's lots of components to that. Uh, there's a small cohort that values organic or naturally produced or range, you know, free-range poultry. Uh, and yet at the same time, do you reject technologies that enhance food production efficiency, that provide profit tools for producers? Uh, my sense is that as the population continues to grow, we have to really crank up food production efficiency. That is more apples per tree, more grapes per grapevine, more lean meat per unit feed consumed. And the only way to do that is invest in science and apply scientific discovery uh, to developing new products. If we we kill science, we kill lots of things that we're going to need in the future. And the challenge will be it takes about 15 years to go from discovery to new product. So if we get to a problem where we have a big-time food problem, then how do we fix the problem? There's no throw on the switch. Now, we talked about this at all, Trent. There's the, the other reality where uh, we well could have a targeted strike that would be a bioterrorism strike on our food production system that would be by the bad guys using a pathogen that would target animals uh, or plant production, and this that would create a big train wreck. Uh, Senator Lugar, who's the, the ranking senator from Indiana, conducts a survey in, in Washington of a, about 150, 200 people that are the leading whiz-bangs in defense, threat awareness. Uh, who whiz-bangs, is that a scientific term? That's kind of a central Illinois, uh, down by the Illinois River term. Okay, go ahead. in these whiz-bangs. These are really accomplished people who know what they're doing. The question is, uh, what do you think the probability is of a terrorist strike on various aspects? One of those food systems. And in the next five years, about one-third of those respondents thinks that there could well be a strike. So as an example, the food and mouth disease virus got introduced into the panhandle and uh, in the Central Valley of California, you would have a train wreck uh, if at the same time targeted uh, soybeans or corn with some pathogens that are there. You could create a bigger train wreck. And if you scare the public, that is, they go to the grocery store and they don't see all the stuff that they're accustomed to seeing. I think the average grocery store has something like 43,000 items, at least the large stores. Uh, we would have a situation we've never seen before. So what people don't value is the food production system we've evolved has been based on science in an important way, and I don't think we can reject it. I could say that, but then more rural routes after this. Remember when you saw the homeless woman in the snow and you almost volunteered to work in a soup kitchen? Or when you saw the news report about wounded soldiers and you almost visited the veterans' hospital? Or when you almost brought dinner to your neighbor with AIDS? Remember all those times you almost talked? 
He meant to. But somehow you forgot. You were too busy, and it slipped your mind. Well, it's only human, this almost giving. But if you almost gave, there's a good chance everybody else almost gave, too. Which means it's quite possible there was no soup kitchen at all. That no one visited those vets. And that your neighbor never got that hot meal. Because almost giving is the same as not giving at all. Don't almost give. Give. To find out how, visit our website at don'talmostgive.org. This message brought to you by the Ad Council. You know, darling, if we catch a break, these next few years could be the best we've ever had. Well, I'd say we're about due. In farming and ranching, the good times can be more stressful than the not-so-good times. And for the good times, it's Central Time. A Central National Bank Ag Professional will help you maintain profitability by helping track your expense lines. They'll help you keep a handle on input costs that seem to change every day. Make sure ground agreements don't transfer too much risk back on you for too long a period. Help you sort through and pick the crop insurance protection plan that's best for you. Central National Bankers have seen the good times and the not-so-good times. They know how to chart and hold a steady course. Central National Bank's Ag Division. The roots run deep. You could profit from what we know. Central National Bank. Money for life. Member FDIC and your hometown since 1884. It's time once again for the question of the day here on KFRM. Today's question is, where in Kansas is the Native American Heritage Museum located? If you know the answer, give us a call at 1-888-550-5376. Is what county in Kansas does the abbreviation MS belong to? And the answer to that question is in Marshall County. If you answer today's question correctly, you'll receive $5.50. Again, today's question is, where in Kansas is the Native American Heritage Museum located? Give us a call at one 888 550-5376 or dial star 550 on your Altel cell phone. For 550 AM, KFRM, the voice of the plains, I'm Dee Dee Singular. That's been the KFRM question of the day for Wednesday. KFRM, 550 AM, Salina, Kansas. Welcome back to Rural Route, segment three, Dr. Terry Etherton the head of animal science in the dairy program at Penn State University. I'm Trent Loose, Kyle Bauer. Still, AWOL. No pay for the day for Kyle Bauer. You know, if we wanted to label these products, maybe I should develop a label for, instead of free-range poultry, skunk-chased poultry. Oh, that's In the dairy industry, what we have is a marketing campaign that seeks to differentiate products by using these claims that, that are misleading or deceptive or promote things that, uh, to illustrate, the, the, this is kind of a humorous little story, but it illustrates the problem. I was in California a couple years ago in Napa Valley. Somebody took me to a very high-end restaurant uh, in the central of Napa Valley, central part of Napa Valley, and they had free-range pork on the menu. I said, where do you get the free-range pork? They said, well, we import this from Pennsylvania. <laughs> and so I said, well, could you bring up the, the major d? I'd like to see who is the source of this free-range pork. They gave me a name, and to this day, I haven't found that pig farm. And I really, and, uh, and so uh, I thought they probably went and bought it from Safeway in, in the town of Napa and just labeled it as free range pork. I said, Who knows if it's free range? Yeah. And so these these products are 
for example, when, they, when you say it's RVSD-free, you can't prove it. When you say free-range pork, you know, I've, I've seen some hog farms that, that produce free-range pigs, and, you know, they're outside, you know, with lots of things you don't want pigs to deal with rolling around the mud, and uh, I'd rather get my pork from a well-managed, uh, highly efficient to operation that uses best management practices and all those things that promote the welfare of cows, pigs, and, and the growing pig. It's just so hard for a person who has not fed a group of sows, gestating sows, to see a sow in a gestation stall and think that's a good thing. But, and I gave this presentation at the animal science meeting in San Antonio and made it very clear. The welfare of a food animal is dependent upon three things. Protection from the environment, protection from predators, and the adequate amount of feed and water on a daily basis. Everything else about animal welfare is to benefit the human, not the animal. And you're exactly right. The scientific community on gestation stalls in the pork industry is a perfect example. We're ready to cave. We're trying to find the way to adapt pen gestation again instead of coming back to the very reason we went to gestation stalls and say, hey, look, it's better for the sow. Well, this is way beyond stupid. I mean, as you know, you get a group of sows together and put feed in front of them. There's, you know, there's just all sorts of fighting and there's a peck order and there's a lot of sows that get entangled with boss sound, it's just not good, and it's just crazy. Having said that, uh, we have, you know, a lot of folks in the agriculture communities we've talked about, Trent, just sitting here passively watching this pass by, and I grew up on a farm, and I was sort of taught you keep your mouth shut, and, and eventually it'll go away. Well, we can't have that mindset state. I mean, there's got to be champions stepping forward to talk about science, the need for food production, why we got to do it better. Uh, and promote the idea that we got the safest and best food system we've ever had in the planet in recorded history. So one of the frustrations that I have is not necessarily, I understand where HSUS and all of those groups are coming from. They're making money. They're surviving. I know how to deal with them. You know where I have the biggest struggle? If you want to talk about the implementation of positive lack, recumbent, bovine, somatotropin, gestation stalls, caged hens, veal calves, the greatest struggle that I have comes from people within the agricultural community who have sided against these technologies because they feel like it gives them a niche in the marketplace. That is dangerous. That is the oldest form of warfare attack strategy known to mankind, divide and conquer, and we're falling right into that trap. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's just stunning that uh, we have this playing out. Uh, there is, uh, interestingly, a group of folks at Penn State and the College of Ag Sciences, and I think all colleges of ag around the country have them, that would be part of the group that I'll call sustainable agriculture. And they promote that in a way that says that's better than using technology. And uh, uh, there's some folks who belong to this group that, that have claimed that we do uh, factory farm research at a dairy farm, which is absolutely crazy. It's a wordplay. But and, we shouldn't let them hijack that word sustainable. No, that, sustainable means many different things. And these words come out, sustainable, uh, sustainable agriculture, saying it's better, it's, it's more authentic. Well, that's, that's not the case. And, and I'm not saying that you should not produce food in that manner, like my grandpa did in 1950, if that's what you want to do. But do not shoot arrows and say anybody with the utilizing any of these technologies that we are talking about, is it dangerous to human health? That's where the problem comes. And if it fits into this marketing reality in the dairy industry, it's really a good milk versus a bad milk marketing campaign. You scare consumers, 
I've told some groups I've spoken to, if Coca-Cola owned the U.S. dairy industry or Pepsi-Cola owned the U.S. dairy industry, you think they'd be having a good soda versus bad soda market campaign? No, absolutely the, not. The dairy industry is the most dysfunctional commodity group on the planet. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Why do you think, uh, when was Starlink? Was that late? That was mid-90s, right? Early 90s? Early 90s. Why did the uh, fear-mongering transfer from plant technology and genetic modification to the science and the animal ag world? Why did that happen? Well, it, it was always there. I think early on it was more focused on the on the uh, genetically enhanced crops that have been developed using the tools of science. And the opponents call these genetically modified organisms, GMOs, but that's just a wordplay. Uh, even from the early days, there were attacks on use of, of BST in the dairy industry. Uh, one of the early sound bites was it causes pus and milk. That creates a good image, doesn't it? That sure does. But pus is white blood cells. First of all, it doesn't do that. It's not true. But you say that in about five seconds, and lots of folks go, whoa. Sure. And uh, these campaigns are driven by value systems and belief systems that are linked to some group seeking visibility for their cause. They need to be visible, attract donations and money. And if you look at all of these groups like HFUS, Food and Water Watch, PETA, and it goes on down the list, uh, you, you can look at their tax returns on a website called guidestar.org and uh, find out all sorts of interesting things. Uh, collectively, the dozens, however many there are, they're probably spending a half a billion dollars a year on their their campaigns of misinformation and propaganda, and uh, some of them can become very sophisticated. HSUX, as I'm sure you know, they've got a bunch of lawyers they've hired, so they have their own little litigation department, and their objectives go out and see who they can sue and what they can disrupt as far as food production and, and animal agriculture. And they've stated their goal is to the complete abolition of animal agriculture, and to date, they have $150 million annually to do that. That's a fair amount of money to hire litigators to do something. And the, and the voices on our side that is for science and animal agriculture, what we spend is not even the rounding air. And so in that context, we're outgunned spending money. And this, this is a battle for public perception, as you know, that's moving at the speed of the Internet. It uses the tools of the Internet and some highly sophisticated marketing campaigns and and people advocating and championing ideas, and animal science scientists and dairy scientists are sitting here watching it pass by, and that's the truth. Oh, and here's the tragedy, is that the speed of the Internet is shaping public opinion. They're doing it. We could be doing it. Everything they do, we could be more on the cutting edge of finding ways to get that information, iPoding, iPhoning, videos. I mean, we, we need to do a better job. Well, yeah. In Pennsylvania, I won't name this organization because they're on the dark side. Uh, they were very opposed to this uh, legislation that will take away absence claims. So on their website, they cranked up a page where you go click on it. There's a letter. You can look at the letter, put in your zip code, and then it gets sent to the governor and then your state representative and local rep and state senator, state representative, advocating that you think this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And you can generate lots and lots of stuff using that technology in a very rapid way. And animal agriculture is beginning to do that, but it's just remarkable how we just sit here and hope it goes away and you interact with lots of folks and there's just a reticence to go out. And part of the challenge is when you do speak up for science, you can get attacked. Uh, have you been attacked personally? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, uh, last week was called an elf for... Where's your hat? I well, should have green clothes on. I, I'm usually called a tout, but the, the being called an elf for a private sector company based in St. Louis, which is not the case, uh, 
I, I take that as I must be having impact and they start rolling out uh, sound campaigns or sound bites to attack me. And then I have another organization that's based in Washington. In fact, you've interacted with them. I won't give them the promotion as far as brand name. They uh, sent me a letter in February where they, they, by virtue of some federal laws, wanted all of my email and recorded history. They wanted all the email of all the faculty in the department that was between faculty and private sector research sponsors. Then they wanted all of my email with some people that they thought was, was paying for me to go out and speak on behalf of the science. Well, if you have to go dig all that stuff out, it takes a ton of time. It's an intimidation tactic. Turns out that Penn State is exempt from the right to know acts. The university council told these folks, hit the road. Why is Penn State exempt from the right to know? There's a state law that makes us exempt from the right to know. Really? Yep. You know, that's actually, and that is what it is. It's an intimidation factor. But it does stop and make you think. Well, it takes time, and, and then when you're out there uh, championing something, doing it in a way where you don't see lots of other folks doing it, you have to have high courage of conviction to do that. And so to the listening audience, uh, my encouragement is uh, get involved. This is a battle that's one voice, one discussion at a time, and uh, you have to represent your best interest because if you don't, uh, then the consequences that happen, you're going to be responsible for. In all sincerity. Dr. Terry Etherton has nothing to gain by explaining all of this. You're a scientist, you're a researcher, head of animal science and dairy at Penn State University. You could just fill your time through the, your tenure. I have, Why do you do this? I have a ton of stuff to do at home. I do this because I have high passion that science is one of the greatest inventions that, that we as, as humans ever came up with. It's developed all of the things that we see, the Internet, all these medical technologies, all the communication technologies. There's a huge return on investing in science. I think it's a wonderful career. And to have it denigrated, attacked, and trashed by people that are anti-scientists, I mean, this takes us back uh, to someplace in the Middle Ages. And if we stop scientific innovation, then how do we deal with all these uncertainties that roll ahead? We can look at food production systems around the world, and we can also see the correlation between the Morrill Act of 1862 and what has happened. Moving from a donkey pulling a stone wheel cart to today, GPS technology and all of the auto steer programs and science that we have, paving the way to improve human lives. More rural routes after this. I think it's time to stand up and say enough already. If you log on to the website, feedstuffsfoodlink.com, you will see where restaurants are attempting to meddle in the affairs of animal husbandry beyond what I believe is acceptable. How long will we allow these restaurant chains that don't know the first thing about animal husbandry to tell us what we should do on our nation's farms and ranches? And I'm not the only one that thinks that. If you log on to the website, feedstuffsfoodlink.com, you can read a letter from Dr. Stan Curtis, University of Illinois. You can also read a letter from Dr. John McGlone, Texas Tech University. And you can read my views on this particular topic. My question, do restaurant chains provide the proper working conditions for these employees, particularly if these employees are immigrant laborers, can be found on the website, feedstuffsfoodlink.com. Are you familiar with the Kansas City Board of Trade Wheat Futures and Options? There are two marketing tools you can use to manage risk in your hard red winter wheat crop. The Kansas City Board of Trade is a forum where the price of hard red winter wheat is discovered. 
They don't participate in trading or set prices, but they can deliver the information you need to decide the role futures and options can play in your marketing plan. They can put you in touch with a futures commission merchant on their trading floor who can advise you on whether these tools are right for you. The wheat futures and options pits are going strong, setting new records for volume and open interest. For a packet of wheat information, including a list of brokers at the Kansas City Board of Trade, send an email to kcbt at kcbt.com or call 1-800-821-5228. The Kansas City Board of Trade, chartered in 1876, is the world's largest futures market for hard red winter wheat. Not only does propane heat their home, it's widely used to power irrigation pumps and all types of agricultural applications. Norris Propane can tell you about all the benefits of a propane-fueled irrigation pump, including longer life, high efficiency, and environmental benefits. Norris Propane of Burdett, providing West Central Kansas with service and fair prices. These are the closing prices in the grain and livestock future markets for this Wednesday, November 28th. December corn up three and three quarters at 387 and a quarter. March corn up three and three quarters at 404 and a half and May up four and a quarter at 415. December Kansas City wheat closed 29 and a quarter higher at 881 and a half. March up 30 at 895 and a half and July up 16 and three quarters at 762 and three quarters. Chicago wheat for December up 30 at 859. March Chicago wheat up 30 at 881 and three quarters and July up eight at 728. January soybeans up five and three quarters at 1096 and three quarters. March up five and three quarters at 1113 and a half. May up five and a half at 1119 and three quarters. Soybean meal for December up 210 a ton at 292.20. January up 290 at 296.60 and March up 370 at 301.70. Soybean oil for December down 17 at 46.13. January down 17 at 46.58 and March down 11 at 47.25. Taking a look at the livestock, live cattle for December closed down 110 at 95 even. February down 90 at 97.05 and April cattle down 85 at 97.92. January feeder cattle down a dollar at 109.57. March feeders 85 lower at 110.15 and April down 92 at 111.22. Lean hogs for December up 32 at 54.87. February hogs up 62 at 62.82. April up 55 at 67.62. February pork bellies down 15 at 91.47. And March bellies closed 82 lower at 90.17. And those are the settlements in the grain and livestock future markets for Wednesday, November 28th. Welcome back to Rural Routes, the fourth segment. Thank that fourth mark in the dash on the pickup. Dr. Terry Etherton, my guest. Uh, I'm Trent Luce, Kyle Bach. Well, we don't have a clue where he's at today. It, you know, I mentioned this the other day at Kansas State University. They had a tremendous group of students, 330 students. And you know how many of them knew the Moral Act, what it meant, and the entire land-grant university system and what it has contributed 
you know, they, they didn't realize that any at Texas A&M, you know, four days later I was there, these students had no idea what the land-grant system was, and the other colleges might talk about agriculture, but if you want to talk about an attack on science, I believe that we have not only an attack on land-grant universities, we have people in an administrative role in land-grant universities that have lost sight of the three legs of the stool that was the original purpose. We, we seem to be focused on research at these land-grant universities because that's where the funding is at, and we lose, number one, the importance of the student in teaching, and number two, the extension, getting the information that you as a researcher learn to the people on the farm to implement it. I spent a lot of time kind of talking to uh, my colleagues about uh, the idea that it's absolutely essential they translate their research findings in a way that can be communicated to the public in an understandable way. Uh, most scientists that do research, their passion, and, and I understand this because I did it, you get grants funded, you conduct the research, publish the papers, become famous, and don't at all get involved in communicating to this population. I've talked with a few folks about the idea that there should be a requirement at universities in the tenure process that every paper you publish, you translate that into something that's understandable by the public, you you market it or put out a press release or communicate, here's the research, this is why it's important, and this is how your tax dollars are being used and why you should think this is great. Now, having said that, I don't think I'm going to hold my breath and wait for that to happen very fast. Why have some language universities lost the commitment? Don't do all three like this. I think uh, they've hired folks into administrative capacities that uh, either don't care or don't know. Uh, and I think they've lost sight of the mission of uh, the Moral Act. And I think they have gone down the path, as I talked about earlier, many scientists not really seeming to care about talking to consumers or educating the public. And extension is that. The extent, my view is that if you can't explain or discuss your findings in a way that is communicated to the public, then why do it? It's only trying to do something for the greater good of uh, society. And if we don't tell people what we're up to, which, as I said, we've done a lousy job, then it really has become problematic. And what we're witnessing now is that a lot of scientists that are very interested in their stuff uh, but don't care to go talk to a local Kiwanis group or go out and engage a bunch of activists to, to share the idea, well, there's another side to this. The other side is what often gets lost. And I don't know if it's worth spending airtime on, but I'll do it anyway, I guess. A scientist, and I won't name him, uh, change the names to protect the innocent, so to speak. He said that it's a factor of urbanization because if you look, at, at my opinion, of the universities, the land-grant universities that are still committed to all three legs of the stool, the original Moral Act mission, they are the universities in the smaller towns. The universities, the land-grant universities in the larger towns have that urbanized thinking and it's all about where can I get research dollars to grow the research and forget about the students and forget about the teaching. And I've thought about that. And I'm, I'm willing to say, I think Penn State is a good example. It's in a small town. Texas A&M, another good example in a small town. Kansas State University in a small town. There's a lot to that. There is. Uh, I would argue uh, that you can do all sorts of things to address that. Uh, for example, uh, our undergraduate program, about 60 to 70 percent of our incoming students in the animal sciences major are from urban suburban backgrounds. Uh, about a third to 35 percent of them have courses as their interest. About 
a third of them have dogs and cats as their interest. And so we've built programs for those kids. We also do lots to, to show them what production agriculture is. Uh, they have to take some required courses that, that illustrates and frames what we do for food production systems and harvesting of animals for food production. And we get them involved in a lot of clubs. At least we encourage them. And you've seen some of those clubs. And, mm-hmm. and, and we have a lot of kids that, that come from an urban background that can become very interested in pursuit careers in production agriculture. Uh, we had a kid from Brooklyn that wanted to go into the beef industry. Now, why she wanted to go into the beef industry, don't know. How she got to Penn State's kind of a story that's of interest I don't get into. And that's what she's doing. So I think that if, if, if universities and departments make an effort, you can develop a program so kids can come to value agriculture, the importance of food production, how to do it, how to do it safely and humanely, and have and do that having grown up in Chicago or Manhattan. Well, if you think about it, Manhattan, New York. New York, not yeah. Kansas. Sorry right. about that. If you think about it, yeah, because <laughs> people, <laughs> people <laughs> listening are saying, oh, man. Uh, right. If you think about Penn State, I mean, you just described it as a phenomenal opportunity for us in animal science and the animal ag world because from State College, Pennsylvania, if you draw a 300-mile radius circle, you've got a third of the nation's population. Oh, it's a wonderful position to market all of this to, the, to that, that cohort. And you're telling me that it's working. It is. We, uh, we have uh, doubled our major. Uh, we do a lot of branding and promoting and recruiting bright lights, and a lot of those students come from urban to urban settings. Uh, we have about 90 to 100 kids that can work at our farm, so they get a hands-on experience. So a lot of kids do that. We spend a lot of time getting kids summer work experiences. So if somebody grows up in Manhattan, New York, and wants to go into the beef cattle industry, we'll send them out to a ranch or some beef production operation someplace, and they can work in uh, the industry in other ways, do that for three summers, take classes, and they've got a real good sense of what the deal is. And then if they're involved in a club where it's a lot of hands-on learning and doing things that that promote uh, various aspects of animal agriculture, uh, they do well. We have a lot of kids that do that, and, and I'm not saying this is unique to Penn State. If, if programs do that, they can end up with a product with a product of a student that's got a skill set that is really helpful. It doesn't matter if they grew up in Kiwani, Illinois, or in, in, in uh, Los Angeles. Penn State, or Pennsylvania is still a wonderful agricultural state, and when I travel there, Lancaster County, you know, is fast becoming urbanized, and yet one of the, in the top five counties in the nation for egg laying, for broilers, for pork production, I and mean, just an incredible story. How does Pennsylvania continue to balance the urban, urbanizing of the land and the thinking in conjunction with continuing to be a tremendous agricultural state? That's a big challenge. The, the uh, southeast part of Pennsylvania, land prices are rocketing upward because of uh, urban sprawl. And uh, that makes it very difficult to buy ground if you want to farm. So that is creating a ripple effect where if people want to do that, they got to go someplace else. Uh, the Amish Plain Coast community, they're sort of moving west and northwest. Uh, and to put that land value thing in perspective, we talk about $2,000 an acre being high. I mean, just beyond what we can purchase and make work in our listening area. Yes. We're talking about $20,000 an acre for this land. Two to $20,000 an acre. And uh, this is ground where if you grew up in the Midwest, you'd look at this and say, that's not worth 200 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> My dad, who... Central Illinois. That's yeah, little... where you could dig to the water table and not find a pebble. You know, Those of us that grew up on the western <laughs> side of Illinois, we, we don't... We're 
relate to what you were dealing with there in the central part of it. That's, that's down by Quincy. Yeah. <laughs> right before you fall into the river. But it, it, it's truly, and outside of Pennsylvania, I don't know that there, I don't think there is a, a true appreciation for what Pennsylvania still has, particularly from a, an agri, animal agricultural standpoint. It's a big state. It's diverse. We've got about 8,500 dairy farms. We've got a huge equine industry. There are lots and lots and lots of people that are practicing production agriculture that would be done the way about 300 years ago. This is the Amish plainclothes community. They make a huge impact in the economy. Uh, interestingly, a lot of them come to our extension program, so they're very interested in, in learning more about new technologies and production practices. You have to send them an email, though. It is. But you know what? They find ways to get to the meeting. <laughs> I, I, uh, when I started as department head in 1998, I'd been in the job six weeks, and this guy, whose name I'll leave out, is an Amish farmer about 20 miles away. He actually called my office. I've been working for six weeks. He wanted to know what I'd done and what I was going to get in for the next six weeks. And Ed laid out, well, here's some things you should think about. I thought that was pretty impressive. Yeah, that is. That's very progressive. <laughs> Absolutely. We're in the final two minutes, Terry. We are here, by the way, at the Dairy Business Association meeting uh, as progressive a group of dairymen as we will find anywhere in the country. Absolutely. I'm impressed with this group. It, it is. As the day goes along, you will only be more impressed. The attack on science. One, two, three. How do we deal with it? We have to encourage people in production agriculture, from farmer to agribusiness individual to the scientific community to get involved, create resources and engage in the public battle, the public battle for getting information out. It's, it's evangelism. It's talking about what can be in a powerful, provocative way that encourages people to listen and frames the value of what we do, the need for what we do, and here's what happens if we give up and go home. And how we get people to get into that arena is the trick. And I've talked to lots and lots of groups, lots of dairy farmers acknowledge they're mad, they're angry, and I say, you have to get involved. Then they say, well, I'm busy, and I appreciate having a dairy farm. It's a hard job. But they have to find a way to carve some time out of their day to create a group. Some states have groups. Wisconsin's fortunate to have this group to defend their interests. Because numerically, you've got less than 2% of the population farming. So politically, that's not many votes. A lot of politicians haven't got a clue about this. Educating them is important. Because if it comes down to they count the votes to make the decision, we're inherently always challenged. 76,000 farmers produce 80% of the food in the country. Yep. We like to use that 2% number, and that's anybody with more than $1,000 in annual products. But if you look at the big picture, 76,000 people, not many out of 300 billion. Not many votes. That will do it for another journey down the road connecting rural and urban America. My thanks to Dr. Terry Efferton from Penn State University, reminding us that it is advocacy. Inven inv Help me with that. Inven evangelism. Evangelism. I got lost with the word. Yeah, it's, not, it's sort of like, you know, most people think that's what you do with church. Well, it's just the power of persuasion. The power of persuasion. I'm producer Chelsea Crook. I'm Trent Luce, reminding you that all roads do lead to a rural route.